Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king, and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bandari from Ortho Evidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mark. Uh, another episode, and I'm looking forward to this chat. Ortho Joe, I've got my little cup yeah. here, and uh, nice actually, I'm on my second cup to be truthful. But, anyways, oh, you know, that's you're just ahead of me as I'm, always. Yeah, an early start to the morning. You know how it goes. We had you up late last night uh, doing a webinar for the for the journal. Which that's right. I really appreciate it. So, no, it was a great session. Why you need the other cup? <laughs> Hip fractures are always going to be, I think, an uh, unsolved problem. But today, um, <laughs> it's a bit beyond the hip fracture. And you know, in fact, what I'd like to do, if I could, is uh, go back to an oldie but a goodie, which is, you know, do we, you know, do we need to really be pushing large clinical trials? And I know for a lot of the listeners and the viewers, they say yes, yes, we've been saying that for decades, but. The problem is when we continually look at evidence and data, we come back to the same circular issue. So we can continue to talk about it, or we can, I guess, start thinking about how we're going to really truly solve this problem. And this one particularly was triggered by a, uh, an ACE report that's come out. It was a highlight paper also that was presented at this uh, recent June meeting of, of the Canadian Orthopedic Association. So I thought it'd be worth sharing uh, with you and getting your insights on this. And the title uh, of this particular uh, study is called The Fragility of Statistically Significant Findings from Randomized Controlled Trials in Hip and Knee Arthroplasty. If there's one area where we think we should be able to get lots of patients, it would be in this area. So it was interesting to me to understand really the uh, scope of the challenge here. So just to remind uh, again, everyone, what we're talking about, the fragility index, and let me just state this, is a method for evaluating the robustness of uh, statistically significant findings from randomized controlled trials. And this goes beyond the p-value and beyond the 95% confidence intervals that we normally do. If a study has a sort of a dichotomous outcome, like infection or no infection, uh, reoperation- or revision or revision. No, or, yeah, or, or, or revision or no revision, you know, uh, those studies can be evaluated using this sort of uh, study. So this basically means in this case is that the fragility index is defined as the number of patients in one arm of that trial that would have to have a different outcome to change the results of the trial from statistically significant to non-significant. And this is all what this review did. So they looked at uh, a number of randomized trials uh, in the area of arthroplasty to look for those trials that actually met the criteria of having a dichotomous outcome. They had about 34 randomized trials in this particular review. Average sample size, about 100 patients, which is also, I think, an important uh, variable here. So take a guess, Mark, what the uh, fragility index was in arthroplasty trials. How many outcomes would have to switch from just one way to change the results of that trial from statistically significant to non-significant? Well, I would say with an average uh, N of 100 or so, it probably wouldn't be any more than two or three patients. Um, well, actually, it's one patient. So you are being overly optimistic um, on, on what it would take. So in this particular case, one patient. But here's the point. That's, if it's not startling, it should be. And, and I think this, this gets back to the, the, to the challenge. Now, 
We can argue and say, well, this is just a problem that's happening in arthroplasty. Um, one thing I will just add before I get your overall take on this is there's been reviews done in the past. There's a review by Khan et al. that looked at sports medicine. And again, they looked at 48 sports medicine uh, studies, randomized trials, and the average fragility index was two. Mm -hmm. uh, We've seen it in shoulder arthroplasty, um, where the average fragility index was one. We've also seen it in pediatric orthopedic trials, where the average fragility index was three, and orthopedic oncology has suggested an average fragility index of two. So I don't think this is you know, any one specific area, but I think orthopedics, and I would argue to say surgery as a whole, um, will have to contend with the fact that we may be in some ways misleading ourselves by thinking that the randomized trials we're conducting uh, are in fact definitive evidence when they are 100 patients. Yeah, so basically it's a problem with small sample size, right? You, you eliminate this problem by having 1,000 patients instead of 100 patients, right? Well, yeah, right, you're right. So, I mean, if you think about, it's about, well, Sample size in this particular context influences the number of outcomes. So you're absolutely right. If yeah. you have, you know, the more outcomes you have, the more outcomes it would take to flip from one side to the other, which makes it less fragile. But you're absolutely right. So you could, in theory, have a small trial with lots of outcome events. Um, could happen. But we don't typically see that, right? It's typically right. few outcomes. Right. Well, let, let me ask you this. It, maybe I'm totally wrong in thinking about this, but doesn't the issue of pooling results in a meta-analytic approach eliminate this issue? So, absolutely. So, if you think about why, why, why this, why combining study results through statistical analysis was so powerful, is because it kind of simulated in many ways, and that's how I always envisioned it: is that you're simulating. Uh, the ability to have conducted a single large trial. So you added way more sample, way more outcomes, and you added more precision, which meant you know your confidence interval, your uncertainty become narrower and narrower. The downside though is you add a ton more quote heterogeneity and you know uh, and a bunch of other biases because you can't control for all those issues between studies. So all that between study variability, hard to eliminate that, right? And that's why people say, you know, Sometimes you're trying to pull apples and oranges. It came up last night in our, you know, in, in a webinar on hip fractures saying, well, you know, you, can you really pull studies from 1968 and 2021? Can you really yeah. do that? There's so yeah. many differences and they're right, right? That becomes the challenge. Yeah, and then the issue that we discussed last night is when you have one very, very large trial, it's gonna totally dominate the results of any meta-analysis that's done. So oh, you're yeah. uh, just to be clear, you're saying that there's no doubt that a very large trial is better than pooling the results of multiple small trials. I will tell you that that was the question that was asked to me in my master's thesis events back in the late 1990s, where um, at that time Jack Hirsch, who's uh, you know done a lot, had done a lot for you know perioperative uh, you know thromboembolism work, had said, "What's more important, a meta-analysis of a thousand? Trials. I mean, a meta-analysis of many trials that add a thousand patients or a single large trial in terms of uh, overall bias and validity. Uh, you know, at that moment, I thought, "Oh, geez, this is a trick question." But it really wasn't. A single large randomized trial always trumps, for the most part, caveats, a meta-analysis of the same number. Now, what's better than a single large trial? A meta-analysis of many large trials. We don't have that luxury so much 
in, in orthopedics, I would say, but I can tell you that in medicine, there are areas, cardiovascular being one of them, where they have conducted very large meta-analyses with very large data sets. Um, it's interesting also, if you look at other journals, Mark, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, if you've ever gone through their uh, table of contents, and I suspect you have, they don't publish meta-analyses for that reason. They have a considerable degree of concern about the meta-analysis approach. I think broadly, I'm, I'm obviously you know giving my own opinion on that. These are my opinions, not theirs, but the fact that they don't publish them tells you a little bit about what they think about them. Right. Right. Well, let's, let, let me force you to get a little bit more practical for our listeners that are having to make real decisions uh, in the clinic and in the OR. So let's just say there's a trial that comes out. I'm going to make this up now. Uh, and shoulder arthroplasty that suggests that uh, it's a trial of 100 subjects. 50 of them had vancomycin powder put in the wound and 50 did not. And the trial shows that it, it's a significant decrease in deep infection rate. What should, and this is published in a major journal, maybe mm -hmm. JBJS. Yeah. So with a small trial like that, how should a clinician interpret those results and or should they include that practice in their uh, surgical decision-making? Yeah, I think when you see a small study, the first thing you say is, well, is this the first study that I've heard about this issue, right? So oftentimes there's that initial innovation study that's getting put out. Uh, and then you ask yourself, is this practice? So if I take a step back, no matter what we see in the literature, uh, ultimately you're standing in front of your patient and you're interacting with that individual. And so evidence-based medicine from its onset was always beginning and ending with the patient. Anything else you do in your algorithm is there to inform you to a point and more importantly, inform you and the patient. So it's always the risk benefit ratio. If you feel that there seems to be some evidence that would support using a particular technique that you have not, let's say, um, and you believe uh, that the risks of using it are so low, that really it's a matter of just discussing with the patient and giving it a go. And sometimes, you know, the risk is cost, right? I'm just going to cost some money, but I don't think there's a downside to this. Then that becomes a little easier. The truth is though, when we start becoming, I would, you know, use the word, and I've been there too, you know, zealots around, well, this randomized trial states something mm. uh, without the context of confirmatory evidence. I, like the thing that's interesting in clinical trials, uh, Mark, uh, that is, that happens often that doesn't seem to happen in the basic science literature is if you take a basic scientist and they presume something, they never say it's fact. They want other groups to absolutely independent labs to say, I've proven, I've demonstrated this before anyone gives it credence or credibility, but we'll stand on a podium with a 50 patient RCT and claim that we have answered the problem and there's no need for new research, right? We've been there, right? We're editors and reviewers sometimes, and I've been in that thing said, well, do we need another trial? We just published one, right? And the point is, yes, we need another trial. So I would say, you know, it's hard to say what someone should do. There's no blanket right statement, but I do think it always begins and ends with the patient and you have to make those judgments. I think the evidence should be there. And, you know, if it's there over years and it becomes almost, you know, common knowledge because there's been so many trials that have been confirmatory, that makes it much easier to use vancomycin powder, for example, than the very first pivotal trial that's come out that says, wow, there could be something to think about here. And, you know, some people will use it earlier than others. Depends on how you're, I think, wired to some degree, right? There's the, there's the early adopter mindset versus a mindset of being a bit more like, I'll wait till I see more evidence. Yeah. Well, I think the, uh, what you point out in how we're 
so often standing on the podium with with a, one trial, uh, the first one on an, on an, on an issue in, in clinical orthopedics, and uh, in, in being sure it, it relates to the surgeon personality, which you don't find in the basic sciences. I mean, we're people who are created to make decisions on less than perfect information. And really, when you think about it, you, you don't cut another human being unless you're absolutely certain that you're doing the right thing. So that's right. kind of where we fall back to is that way that our, that our personalities are constructed and the way we, we look at life. In fact, that's a topic for another ortho, Joe. It is, you know, it is absolutely. And, and and on that point, I would urge all of our viewers and listeners to continue to provide us comments. And we're getting more and more. We're getting more and more comments. We're getting, you know, uh, more and more suggestions for topics. So really, really appreciate that. And we do listen and we read every comment that comes in and we do think about, okay, can we add this? So if there's speakers you want us to talk to, other individuals, please let us know. But I'll let uh, Dr. Swinkowski kind of give the, uh, the, the specifics on how you communicate with us uh, as we end this particular session. But it's been great as usual, chatting about a very important issue. Absolutely important. So the way to contact us is orthojoe at jbjs.org. Uh, and it's all lowercase will work just fine. And until the next time, Mo, I've got to get to my second cup. I'm on my third now. I'm on my third. (laughs) Have a good day. Cheers. Cheers.